0: This programming is sponsored by the UH Health Family Care Center, offering primary care and behavioral health services on the University of Houston campus. Health insurance plans, including Medicare and Medicaid, accepted. New patient appointments and more at -UH (laughs) 832-UH-CARES. Howdy, it's the Texas edition of Party Politics. I'm Jay Iyer, political science professor from Texas Southern University. And I'm Brandon Rottinghouse, a political science professor from the University of Houston. Well,
1: thanks for hanging out and talking about the Lone Star State. Um, It's a big money week this week, Jay. So in the deep, we're going to talk a little bit about fundraising. But there actually are a couple of things here policy-wise of real consequence.
0: Happening. So, what's up first? Well, first off, the omnipresent Texas redistricting (laughs) battle, right? Right. Every time we do redistricting, um, there's always court challenges. And this is no different. So, Texas had put out some maps, had been challenged on the constitutionality, both in terms of violations as it relates to race and ethnicity, but also uh, a novel argument of extreme partisan gerrymandering. Well, the Supreme Court has actually thrown that element out, Uh, it was raised by the Texas Democratic Party. So partisanship is no longer a factor, but they're still looking at violations as it relates to race and ethnicity and whether districts, some of these districts have been, as we say, packed or some of them have been cracked. Some of these uh, communities have been cracked, minimizing their ability to elect who they want to elect. Yeah. So the the Democrats wanted to push the partisan angle. That's not
1: going to happen, at least in terms of this case, although we know Wisconsin is, uh, the Wisconsin right. case we've talked about is... And Maryland, did in Maryland. In a Maryland case yeah. And so we're likely to see something from the courts on this. But the race issue by itself could really be consequential for Texas, because if it's the case that there is an intentional discrimination finding, then the U- then Texas could be pulled back under uh, uh, preclearance and the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to read this exactly. I'm worse at reading the tea leaves on what the courts do than I am at, like, predicting March Madness basketball uh, winners. But I do suspect that they think that they have a authoritative holding in the Wisconsin case. So the partisan gerrymandering is settled in some way, at least for the court. So we don't know what that will be. But um, we do know that the race issue is still alive, and that's going to be important for Texas.
0: Yeah, it affects a few districts. And so one of the issues we've talked about this in the past, congressional districts can have no a deviation in population. And so they have to fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. So we know there's three districts that are questionable. You start making changes to one or two of them, all of a sudden you're, you're <laughs> <Jenga>. rewriting. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. You're re- redoing a bunch of other ones. In the same light, we've gotten some new information, Brandon, about what's happening with special education here in Texas. There was a federal report that came out. What did that tell us?
1: Yeah, so uh,
0: this was a, an
1: ongoing issue on um, that the Houston Chronicle had led a report um, on, and what effectively it found is that the state had set enrollment targets for special education students at 8.5% of enrollment, and this was found to violate federal law, which requires and ensures a free and appropriate public education to students with disabilities. It was also the case that Texas was found to be faulty in what they call the child find responsibilities to reach out and identify kids who might have special needs. So there's a lot of finger-pointing going on. The governor said legislature didn't do enough, legislature and some of the Democrats are saying the governor didn't prioritize it. So it's become a political mess on top of what is already an obvious policy
0: problem. Tens of thousands of kids were not identified and not adequately uh, provided the the resources they needed for, for education. Back in 2004, 2005, during that legislative session, the legislature had already designated 8.5% as the cap. Yep. Former Lieutenant Governor Bill Ratliff had released an old PowerPoint that was put out that essentially stated that, Uh, It had also been placed in regulatory books that are generated by the Texas Education Agency as far back as 2006. This has been going on for over a decade, and really the victims here are kids. The legislature was asleep at the wheel. The oversight of the governor's office has been essentially non-existent. We've talked about this before. Governor Abbott has just been asleep at the wheel, and many of his agencies have been heavily criticized, whether it's the TEA, whether it's TxDOT. Um, whether it's the uh, alcohol and beverage commission with just a whole series of malfeasance that's taken place. That's, resulted in a lot of problems.
1: Yeah. In addition to that, um, the the government is sleeping
0: on Harvey Relief, which is another big policy issue for the
1: week. Uh, What's happening there?
0: Yeah. You've had an $81 billion supplemental Harvey Relief bill that had passed the House. They thought it was going to make it to and and get here to Texas and Florida and, and Puerto Rico, et cetera. It's been stuck in the Senate. It is not in this continuing resolution that it looks like the House may pass. Um, and so right now we're in limbo and you're already seeing calls, uh, Mayor Turner in Houston and County Judge Emmett have renewed calls to have the governor allow the rainy day fund to be used at least as a, an entity to generate a loan that would then be repaid by the federal government. To start on some of these uh, Harvey relief efforts. It's a real issue. It's not going away.
1: Yeah, there will definitely be electoral consequences for this. I think you have several members of the congressional delegation who are going to have this at their doorstep. John Culberson, Pete Sessions, who are in jeopardy, possibly Will Heard. But you also, like you said, have the governor who has the potential and the ability to be able to try to ask the government to tap this fund. But it's certainly the case that members of the legislature have to agree. So there's a lot of finger pointing here as well. And this is going to be an electorally, I think, damaging issue for those people who don't move quickly on it.
0: Now, Brandon, um, speaking of Governor Abbott, he unveiled uh, his new tax plan. What What is he going to do for the people of Texas? So, yeah, the governor, who is obviously
1: running for re-election, has made a pretty bold proposal, and that is to limit local government. So cities, counties, school districts, uh, to an annual revenue increase of 2.5 percent. If it's the case that they want to go above that, it requires two-thirds of voters to approve that. They also prohibit the state from charging local governments with providing new services without handing over state funds to cover those costs. So this is a pretty big and bold initiative. It follows up on some of the property tax debates that we had last session that didn't get ultimately resolved. But obviously, the politics of this are going to get wrapped up uh, in addition to the financing.
0: Um, What's essentially happened is, is that homeowners, Texas homeowners, have seen their home appraisals skyrocket. And that's resulted in increases taxes. When you start capping the rate, and capping the increase, then you create an effect where you sort of starve uh, individual governing entities. You're we talking about HISD, the largest school district in, in Texas, would have lost something we're in a neighborhood of $500 million over the last few years um, just based on this alone. So it, it sounds good, but as a practical measure, it's a bad idea. There's a little deja
1: vu all over again here too, because Texas did something like this in 2006. They had a huge property tax cut they wanted to make up for with the business tax, with the franchise tax. It never ended up making up for it. And essentially then the state contribution to schools has shrunk per pupil. So effectively here, the state's spending less money per pupil on education. The local governments are spending more. And if you cap that, it's gonna create a problem for them to be able to make up those differences. So. The effect on public education is profound, and um, I think it's potential to be a, a fiscal issue that has
0: been continuing since 2006. But it's good politics. Yeah, of course, right? Because you know it is against the state constitution to have a property tax. So the property taxes that the governor is trying to cut is coming entirely at at the expense of local governments. And and Brandon, this goes back to another issue you and I've talked about, which is the governor of Texas wants to be the mayor of Texas. He wants to directly sort of go after local control. And this is just one more example of that.
1: Well, speaking of of consequences, potentially grave consequences, we have had some uh, unfortunate news on the issue of maternal mortality. What's happening, Jay?
0: During the past session there was a, a study that was conducted on the rates of maternal mortality texas suffers a rate that is dare i say is close to third world levels yeah. and mothers are dying um, in childbirth at a rate that is unlike anything else in the western world um, and is a real real problem and it goes directly to in terms of the amount of dollars that are spent on health care and some of the uh, neonatal prenatal issues uh, here in texas and it's fundamentally a problem of lack of investment um, in our public health infrastructure.
1: Yeah, these, these are jaw-dropping numbers. The rate of maternal mortality apparently doubled between 2010 and 2012. This is a public health crisis that shakes families to the core. It's something that for sure is gonna be on the governor's agenda and definitely has to be on the next legislative agenda.
0: Well, we're gonna take a quick break when we come back. We're gonna dive into fundraising reports, lots of money, Uh, out there. Candidates are raising who did well, who did not. We had a week where we had
1: a lot of candidates shouting, show me the money. We had fundraising reports that were coming out. They've been leaking out. So we don't know all of them, but we know a lot of them. And there's some interesting dimensions here. So let's start with the governor. What did we see in terms of who raised what for the governor's race?
0: Well, first off the top, Greg Abbott. Has a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked about this before. Uh, Governor Abbott had started with a pretty massive war chest. Um, He raised over nine million just this reporting period. He's up to almost over forty-three million dollars. It's a massive, massive war chest. Uh, And his two opponents on the or two major opponents, I should say, on the Democratic side, are nowhere in the ballpark. Um, Andrew White, uh, the son of former Governor Mark White um, and a Houston businessman, he's a financial leader on the Democratic side. Um, and he took in $200,000, and $40,000 of that is from himself. Um, and that $40,000 is an important number because Lupe Valdez, his primary opponent, only raised $46,000. Both candidates are woefully underfunded, and it's not a good showing. Better for him than her, certainly, just in terms of the amount of money raised. But uh, neither uh, are raising anywhere near what they should in order to challenge uh, Governor Abbott. Yeah, it's going to take a lot more green to turn Texas blue. And
1: in both cases, they were dramatically underfunded. He has a thousand times as much money as she has. Now, okay, we're early, right? So for one, we literally have just started this race. So that gives you some sense of where things are and why the numbers are low. But there's still a perception, I think, that this is not a competitive race, which means that there's going to be less money. They haven't raised a lot of money before. Lupe Valdez has never really had to raise a lot. And Andrew White is new to politics. So it's not surprising that they don't have a huge war chest. Um, And uh, so I think ultimately we can kind of forgive them. But it's definitely the case that they're going to have to catch up in terms of money because they're not as well known as he. And it's going to take a lot of time to get that done. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick is also fairly flush with money, and his opponents aren't, frankly, raising much either. Jay, what's going yeah, on? Yeah,
0: we've got that. So he drawn in about $2.5 million, a little over $2.5 million. Um, he's got a pretty healthy war chest, about $18 million in the bank. Mike Collier, um, who is the leading Democratic candidate, has about 129000 raised. He's got about 143000 cash on hand. And he's got $140,000 in a loan from a business that, uh, that he has ties to, not raising very much either. So both at the gubernatorial and lieutenant governor level, the Democrats have a long, long way to go. Neither are competitive financially right yeah. now.
1: Um, some that are competitive though are, are interesting. First is the AG race, where right, where uh, Sid Miller and Trey Blocker, um, who both have about a half a million dollars on hand. I thought that was pretty interesting. The other is the attorney general's race. Now, Ken Paxson doesn't have primary challenge to speak of, but he has a Democratic opponent who's raised a bunch of money, right? He's got about almost a million dollars in the bank. He loaned himself a big chunk of money, but he raised about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So Ken Paxton, although he's got about one point seven million dollars, is definitely up against somebody who can put some money in the bank. And I think that's gonna change the dimension of that race. Yeah,
0: that's that's really I think right now the the one most people are looking at because it, it looks like it could be the most competitive race. Justin Nelson, the likely Democratic nominee, or I guess he is the Dem- will be the Democratic yeah, yeah. nominee because he's <laughs> the only candidate running is raising a tremendous amount of money. He's personally wealthy himself, has tremendous ties in the legal community throughout the state. Um, Ken Paxson, as we talked about before, has been basically been under indictment through his entire tenure in office because he's sort of splitting how he's raising his money because a a good chunk of what he's raising is going towards a legal defense fund. Um, So he's got a, a lot of sort of structural issues to combat with. And this is a race that I think is going to be very competitive in a way that maybe some of the other races aren't.
1: You know what I thought would be competitive would be the land commissioner primary. Um, so uh, George P. Bush has been attacked by Jerry Patterson, who was the former land commissioner on a bunch of different dimensions, including the Alamo and mismanagement of Harvey issues. Patterson, though, only raised about 90000 and he loaned himself 20000 George P. Bush um, has got about a million dollars in contributions in this last cycle. So I thought this would be more competitive than it. Ends up being um, so. I'm surprised that Patterson didn't ramp it up more quickly than, than he has.
0: Yeah, Patterson's always been sort of, I think, um, generally regarded as, as someone who doesn't raise a lot of money, at least as it relates to some yeah. other other candidates. Yeah. Um, but I think he's he's has high name ID, relatively yeah. speaking. He's been in that office before. He needs less. So even though the margins look like ten to one right now, or if a little bit more than that, twenty to one, um, there's still a possibility. But with a very short race. Running against a guy whose last name is Bush in Texas, <laughs> uh, the odds are very much stacked against you if yeah. you're Jerry Patterson. Need some more in
1: the bank. Um, let's talk surprises. I was surprised actually that a lot of the challengers to some of the Straussian moderates aren't raising a lot of money. So in HD87 for Price dramatically outraised his challenger, 330k to 34k. Challenger in House District 9 to Chris Patty only raised about 36000 C.J. Grisham in, in House District 55 only raised about 35 k uh, challenging Hugh Shine. So a lot of the moderates that were kind of Strauss-backed haven't raised a lot of money. I'll throw one more. Kel Seliger, who is probably the most vulnerable member of the Senate, is at $1.7 on hand. His opponents are only raising a million to less than that, uh, Mike Cannon, Victor Leal. So the moderates look like they're hanging in there.
0: Yeah. So my read on that is, is that most of the money against the moderates on the challenger side are going to come from independent expenditure campaigns. Yeah. So folks like Empower Texans, a lot of these groups that are conservative-oriented PACs are going to be funneling independent campaigns themselves into these districts that they're going to deem that uh, are, are winnable. I'm less interested in that side than I would be on some of these independent expenditure campaigns. We, we see the same thing here, here in Houston, Sarah Davis uh, versus mm-hmm. Susana mm-hmm. Um Davis is going to have considerably more money, but DoCapill's appeal is really more, uh, or at least her financial appeal is going to be much more based on independent expenditure campaigns. We have talked about congressional races, and I think it's yeah. important to do that. John Culberson, the incumbent in CD7 here in Houston, He's got seven or eight challengers on the Democratic side. They are outraising a multi-year incumbent in Congress by a relatively hefty margin. Um, this is gonna be an interesting race if and when it gets to the general. Um, John Culberson's in a very tough fight.
1: Yeah, he, he raised, what, $346,000, which is good. He kicked that into gear from where it was, but still is not where you would like it to be for a vulnerable incumbent. Many of his challengers, yeah, are raising two hundred, three hundred. K, and that's a pretty good haul. I'm frankly surprised at how much money is there. I think partly it's because it's viewed as to be like a competitive seat uh, and they smell blood in the water. But it, the way in which they're raising that money is also really interesting. It's not all just big checks. A lot of it are smaller checks by a lot of people. And that's something I think that tells us that there is a kind of grassroots nature to that race in particular.
0: Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to tell you why all of these money things matter so much in politics. <music>
1: So, Jay, we know that money is the mother's milk of politics. It signals viability. It signals strength. And if you can raise the money the right way, it shows that there's a grassroots support for you. So what do we need to take from all these crazy numbers from the week?
0: Well, I mean, I think what we can take right now is, is that a lot of the statewide races are not competitive from a general election perspective, with the real exception being the attorney general's race. Uh, Justin Nelson is in a great position versus Ken Paxton right now. We don't have a competitive governor's race. Something dramatic has to happen on the, on the Democratic side where money flows to one of the candidates for a general election. We're looking at a situation now where, as you said, Greg Abbott has a thousand times more, more resources. And that means he defines his message and he can define his opponent before they can define themselves. Yeah. At the congressional level, John Culberson's in real trouble. That's a competitive district. Regardless of who becomes a Democratic nominee, he is in for a dogfight.
1: Yeah, I think um, a couple things struck me. I mean, number one, there's a lot of money out there. And I think if you're a Democrat or if you're a challenger, then you're happy about that. I think one fear is that if these elections aren't perceived to be competitive, then no money flows. Well, there's a lot of money out there. The other is that it seems like there's a lot of money flowing to challengers, and so the anti-incumbent mood could be very real here, and so you could see this as a kind of evidence of of a real reaction to the kind of current politics in the state. I do think you see moderates who are fairly safe. We talked about some of them, um, you know, a few minutes ago, but I think you also see um, some potential here for there to be Democratic pickups. So in House District 115, um, Matt Rinaldi is somebody who has been vilified by the Democrats. The challenger outraised him there uh, in the Connie Burton Senate district, which was Wendy Davis's old district. That's basically an even up race in terms of money raised. So there are some potential Democratic pickups out there. If the money continues to flow in that way, we could see some real game changers.
0: Well, that's a wrap for this week. Remember, we do a weekly National Politics Episode 2, which you can download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Party Politics is recorded in the George B. Geary Performance Studio at Houston Public Media. Thanks to our excellent producer, Edale Howland, and to
1: our sound engineer, Todd Big Money Holstlander. I'm Jay Iyer. And I'm Brandon Rottinghouse. We'll see you next week.